Well, again, I want to welcome you to our gathering today. Thank you for gathering with us. Um, really quickly, I want to make a disclaimer um, just up front. Uh, because we are a church that preaches exegetically, so we go book by book. We start in a book of the Bible, chapter 1, verse 1, and we work our way through. Uh, we don't skip around the hard stuff, and today uh, is going to be one of those days. And so for parents, uh, a message was sent out on our center students. Group me yesterday uh, th- that we we're going to be talking about something that might be sensitive uh, to uh, kids, or maybe just in, in terms of just how you view things. And so one Macy's over here. If any of the kiddos, there's no shame, nothing like, like we just want to allow you the space. They can go to Center Kids 3 or help in one of the Center Kids classes. Um, All right. I told you. Here we go. Well, with that, let's go ahead and open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where today uh, we're going to dive back into our series through First and Second Thessalonians entitled, A People in the Now Living for the Future. But before we dive in, I, I quickly just want to recap kind of what we looked at last week. I know with the holidays, many were out, and uh, for some of you know that we've been, we, we spent two weeks, uh, something we do each year, going through a generosity series where we talk about, I mean, what generosity is, why we're called to be a generous people. And so week one, we looked at generous God at John three sixteen, and, and looked at just the reality of that man. Generosity starts with God. He is the source of generosity. We see it in his love that he displayed by the sending. He gave everything, his son, right? And his son gave his life. And so uh, last week we looked at what it means to be a generous people. And, and I laid out from first Timothy six, two warnings that we saw. Paul talks to the rich, which again, all of us in this room are, would be Considered the rich, right? In today's context, based on what Paul is writing here, we're all rich, right? Like we have means in comparison to those that Paul would say probably are poor. Uh, but so he gives these two warnings to the rich, and then he exhorts us to trust God with our time, talents, and treasures. And so what I did at the end of our time last week, and I'm going to talk about this again. Um, uh, during our announcements today, but I laid out three challenges for us as the church as we uh, move towards uh, the end of the year into the new year. The first is in regards to our time. So I challenged, the challenge in terms of our time is that 100% of our partners, which we don't say membership here, we say partnership. If you want to know why, we'll have a basics class in January and you can learn about why we call them partners. But we want 100% of our partners uh, in a missional community, which is kind of our midweek uh, kind of get-togethers that we do. Uh, and so we want, if you need information about that, you can come talk to myself or Paige and Nathan Meyer. Uh, they're kind of overseeing MCs right now. But uh, we want 100% of our partners partners participating, actively participating, which I would consider three times a month in a missional community. Secondly, we talk about talents or our gifts, right? I want 100% of our partners serving in some capacity on Sundays. Now with that, I want to also say this. Maybe right now you're serving in a capacity that doesn't really require a whole lot of you, right? Like maybe uh, today you're going to see people helping with communion. I don't want to discount like every area of service is needed, okay? So don't make me think that there's like tiers of service. Uh, kids is at the top. Uh, but <laughs> no. Um, but it, it, it maybe for you what that means is like maybe you've got a little more time and you say, hey, maybe I can serve in another capacity because this isn't really requiring a lot of me. I know one area we need some help in is in setup and teardown. So uh, if you're interested in that, come let me know. And then lastly, 
I made a challenge about our treasure, which again is our finances, our money and funds. And what I said was that our goal this year, kind of the challenge we've set forth, is we want to raise $15,000 by the end of the year for a student-slash-mission fund. And this is what I mean by that. We want to raise support and funds to help our center kids, some of our center kids and our center students, get to camp this summer, okay? And so we want to help allocate some funding so we can help support getting those students to camp. Doesn't mean that's going to cover all of it, but as a church, we say, hey, one of the ways that we're called to disciple, uh, man, our children is by supporting them, and so we want to do that. And then on the other side of that, with missions, we want to have, uh, man, some, some margin to be able to grow what it means to support local, regional, and global missions. And so those are kind of the three challenges. I encourage you uh, to go listen to the why behind that from the sermon if you haven't already. Uh, but I wanted to just lay that out. And then quickly, since it's been so long, uh, it, really two weeks, it seems like a long time for me. Uh, since we've been in Thessalonians, let's just get a quick recap and then we'll dive right in. So, if you remember from this letter, Paul had gone to Thessalonica and shared the gospel with the people. People are saved, both Jew and Greek, but following some time with him, he is torn away, as he expresses, because of persecution. And in his absence, Paul has some concerns. One of the concerns is that the people have been listening to other voices because they're isolated, and they are now beginning to distrust who Paul was and the gospel that he proclaimed. And then that leads to the second concern, which is that he's uh, concerned that they might turn away back to Judaism or their pagan idol worship that they were once involved in. And so what he does in response is he sends Timothy to be a gospel presence that would encourage these believers. But also, Paul wants to know, he says, Timothy, I want you to come back to me and give a report on what's going on in that church. And so the result that we see because of Timothy's report is Paul's response is one of joy that reveals his deep care and concern for this people. And so what I laid out at the end of chapter 3 were four applications that I believe really carry us into what is a a transitional portion of the letter in chapter 4 today. And and these are the four applications that we laid out at the end of 3. That we as a people would be a gospel presence, meaning that, that as God's people, we would have a concern both inside and outside the church that is quick to act and not gossip. Secondly, in light of being a gospel presence, we would be willing to enter into each other's lives. And what I mean by that is like we would actually be the body of Christ, the community of God, His people. And to do that, and I believe scripture supports this, man, we have to be a people that know one another and are known by one another, okay? Next, in light of all this, we would encourage one another to continue on. So as life happens, right? When life hits that we would be an encouragement to just say, hey, continue on. Like maybe some of you, like you needed that this week. You know, you were in the holidays around a whole lot of family and, uh, you know, your spouse, you need your spouse or someone to say, hey, you know, be nice. Uh, or, you know, uh, wake up, right? One of the first holidays I took Haley to with my family, I did what we always do. We ate uh, we ate our Thanksgiving meal and then we laid on the floor and went to sleep, but she did not. And she had to talk to my grandmother the whole time. First time meeting her. And when I woke up, she said, never do that again. Right. I didn't know. Um, 
So to encourage one another to continue on. And then lastly, Paul, at the end of chapter 3, he says that his prayer is that love and holiness would grow in one another. Their love and uh, holiness would grow in one another. You see, it'll be this last action step that Paul lays out in verses 11 through 13. Grow in love and holiness that really sets the stage for our time today and really our time next week. And as we move into this next uh, kind of uh, part of this letter where we're going to see uh, Paul is going to begin to get into three discipleship growth areas. Really, we're only going to look at one today. These three discipleship growth areas that Paul wishes, as he says in chapter 3, verse 10. He says, I wish I could see you so that I could supply what is lacking in their faith. Now, what I love about that is this. is Paul writes that and he says, look, I wish I could be with you because, man, there's some concerns. There's some things that I believe are lacking in your faith. Not that you're void of faith, but, man, uh, we all need to be strengthened because we're all in process But then look at what he does. We're going to see what he does in chapter 4 is that while he's not face to face, he doesn't wait. Actually, what he does in this next part of the letter is he just steps in with care and concern to encourage and strengthen others in what it means to live out the gospel in one's life. Man, I think, like, if there's one thing, like, just even in our this opening part that we should take from is that as God's people, man, let us not be a people who sit back and wait. Now, I believe there's timing in everything, and there's, especially with what we're going to talk about today, there's levels of maturity and readiness to hear certain things. Uh, but with that, so often I think, well, well, I'll just get to that tomorrow. I'll talk about that. I'll, I'll raise that concern. I'll seek to disciple or strengthen or uh, grow. Some, and I'll, I'll just uh, I'll just kick it down the line a little longer. I'll wait till the perfect moment and opportunity, right, where the truth is going to hit the hardest, as if we were the ones that, when we speak truth, that we're the ones that produces change, right? And so we wait. But man, let let us be like Paul and say, no, when I see something, may I just uh, simply, by the Spirit's leading, engage in it, even if it's not the most perfect and opportune time. You see, because Paul would really rather be with them, but he's not. And yet he says, hey, but there's some things I want to talk to you about. You see, so what are... These three areas that he's going to address in chapter 4. Well, the three areas that he's going to address are these. Sex, love for one another, and our response to death and grief. And so with that before us, let's begin by looking at how Paul sets the stage for where he's moving to in the letter by reading verses 1 and 2. Paul says this, Finally then, brothers... We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Okay, so as we hear that, as we kind of see kind of Paul's beginnings in this chapter, I want to begin our time with just a question. Do you ever have a moment where you're talking to someone and in the midst of the conversation, they seem to change course to something totally different that makes you just really, really confused? Anybody? Right? Like, like, or maybe that's you. Like you're in a conversation and then something comes to your mind that you think connects to it and you say it immediately and they, the person looks at you like, what are you talking about? And then you look at them like, what do you think I'm talking about? Right? Like I'm making sense right here. 
Like, I, I do this all the time. Like, this is like my, if there's one thing, like, this is my MO in our marriage. Like, Haley was like, there's, every day I'll say something, Haley's like, what are you even talking about? And I'm like, you know, like, we, I'm, I'm talking about it. She's like, no, like, makes no sense. Like, she's tracking, 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 and then boom, left field randomness hits her. But to me, it makes sense. You see, somehow the information from our conversation connected in my brain to something else, and to me it makes perfect sense. And it was a logical next step. You see, to Haley and many others, it makes no sense until I connect the dots, and then, for me, one of three things happen. One, it all makes sense. Oh, I get why you were going there. Two, and this is usually the case, it it still makes no sense at all. Like, I just chased a squirrel, right? I mean, if you have children or around children, I don't even mean like little kids, like I'm talking about 30-year-olds, 30, like, like if you're around like kiddos, like my kids will be talking to me and then they'll be like, they'll just say something and I'm like, what are you, like, dad, you know, da, da, da. Why do donkeys run forward but they can't run backwards? And I'm like, whoa. Where does that even come? And they're like, no, really? Like, just tell me. You know, I'm like, I don't know. But then lastly, it, what happens is, it, the third thing that happens is, I just do the same thing again, right? It's like this perpetual craziness where nothing makes sense, and yet I just say something else that still doesn't make any sense. And the reason I state this is because at first glance, like when you get to the end of chapter 3 in 1 Thessalonians and then you begin at the beginning of 4 and what follows, it seems like, it's almost like a, a whiplash jerk from one thing to something totally new and you're like, wait, what's going on? Why? It seems like a bit of a jump from a systematic defense of the gospel and Paul's ministry of care towards the church to something totally different, but actually... When taken as a whole, we see that it's just an overflow of Paul's love for this group of people and his longing to see them strengthened and encouraged in the midst of their hardship. You see, what Paul is doing here is he's not moving to close up the letter with final thoughts. When he says finally, guess what? we still got two chapters left. Like He's not tying the boat. Like He's actually just saying, hey, now I want to, I'm getting to what I actually want to talk about. What he's doing here is he's moving from the hope of the gospel for life to the overflow of hope that the gospel is to bear in our living. Really what he lays out here are what we would call Christian ethics for what it means to live life as a disciple of Jesus in the face of hardship, discouragement, struggle, and temptation. Now when we talk about ethics, ethics simply defined our moral principles that govern one's behavior. So ethics, simply, when we think about it, even as Christians, I I believe, man, everyone has an ethic. Most people just have really poor ethics. Like, culture has an ethic, and it's blaring at you all the time, right? And it's always changing. But but it has an ethic, but it's a poor, but as Christians, we, we have an ethic, right? Like, we have the Word of God. They're, they're, they're moral principles that govern our behavior. But the thing about this, whether you're inside the church or outside the church, is, man, the, these moral principles, these things that are to govern our behavior, man, it's a struggle for us, is it not? And not simply because, you know, there's that quick and easy answer that, man, we're just sinners, right? Like we're broken by sin. True. 
So that makes it even like more harder, right? Like, like that, like, but like it's a struggle for us. You see, we love to preach the gospel. We love to hear it preached, but we are more known at times for the preaching of it than we are as a people who live and adorn the gospel. But why is that? Like, why is it that, that, that we're so keen and quick to, to love, to preach it, to hear it, but not so keen to adorn it and live it out in our lives? Well, well let me give two quick reasons I think there's a lot, but here's just two quick ones. Uh, we love, if we're honest, we, we really love a small gospel. What I mean by small gospel is this. For, for many, when they hear the word gospel, which again just means good news, but I would take it further and say it's the good news that Jesus defeated sin, death, and Satan through his life, death, and resurrection. But, but what we do with that is we make it really, really small. And we say, okay, well, what the gospel is, is that Jesus saves me from my sins and I get to go to heaven. Give me my ticket, right? Like I got my ticket to heaven and this is it. And so everything for us is based on, yeah, I'm good. It doesn't matter. I'm just waiting. I'm waiting for that day. And what it leads to, because we believe in that moment that we're just saved for the future, is escapism. I'm just going to hold on. But the gospel has no bearing on my living now. Now I think along with that, while we tend to run to a small gospel, also, man, we've seen, especially inside the church, man, the good news be twisted, the scriptures be twisted in ways that that promote legalism, right? And so when we look at the word of God and we think about ethics, we're like, well, I don't want to become a legalist. Which I believe is a healthy fear. But I also believe it's a cop-out for laziness in living out the robust gospel of the scriptures. The robust gospel is that, man, Jesus has saved you from the penalty of sin. And guess what? The other side of that, guess what? One day Jesus will save us from the very presence of sin. It will be no more. But the reason this gospel is robust and not small is because there's everything in between. Because today... And tomorrow, unless he comes back, or you go to glory, guess what? He is saving you from the power of sin. None of us have arrived. We're all still growing. We've been saved. We've been justified. One day we will be glorified, but right now we're being sanctified. And this is what Paul is after when he says, Finally, brothers... He's transitioning from encouraging them in the hope of the gospel and is now exhorting them to live it out in three areas of concern. And again, in using the term brothers, like he's not just talking to uh, the elders of the church. He's talking to everyone. He's saying, hey, church body, this is for you. All of us need to listen to this. None of us have arrived. We can all learn and grow. And so today, like as you hear this very sensitive topic, like don't brush it off. as Well, that's just not for me. I, or, or maybe I, I just don't really struggle with that because guess what? Pride comes before the fall. And so Paul says, finally, brothers, but then what is he doing? He, he, he says, look, I ask, we ask and we urge you. Paul, Paul begins this section by saying, hey, I'm going to make a request, but it's, it's not really a request. It's actually a demand. 
The, the, the word for ask and urge there is actually a military term that says this is a must. You see, what Paul is doing, he's saying, hey, if you're a believer, if you believe the gospel, guess what? That's the indicative. Now, guess what? The imperative is that you must live this way. It's a natural overflow. Now, it's a progressive sanctification, a progressive obedience, but man, you must live this way. You pursue this. He says we ask and we urge. And then he uses the term in Christ, which I believe does two things. First, Paul is once again pointing to their union in Christ. He's saying, hey, first, remember who you are. Remember who you're in. You're in Christ. Nothing happens apart from the work of Christ on your behalf, salvation, and in your life, sanctification. But I believe this also bears with it the authority by which Paul states the things he does. And so what is Paul asking and urging them to do? Well, he's asking and urging them to live out the things they've already received. You see, Paul isn't sharing anything new to this group of believers. Rather, all he's doing is just calling them to live out that which they already know and everything they've already been taught. I mean, I think that's so true for us today. Like, one thing we need to realize is, guess what? Like, we have the Word. Like, we have it right here. You don't need a new word. There's 66 books. We, we, the, the, the canon is like, you don't need a new word. What we need is to live out the word today. Which is why we read it, study it, preach it. Not so that we might know more, but that in knowing we would actually live it out. We don't need a new word. Let's just live out what we know, Paul says. I had some buddies that were, they, they were a bit older than me. Uh, they were in Lubbock at, and, uh, at Tech. And, and before I got there, there was a guy that was leading this thing called Paradigm, which is kind of like a, a weekly worship service that they would have. Uh, and there was this guy named Strap. I don't remember his first name. Uh, but Strap was the preacher. And every week for a whole semester, he just preached the same sermon. Over and over and over again. And about nine or ten weeks in, some of the leaders who thought they knew a lot came to him and they said, Hey, Strap, like, you know, we love your preaching. But when, like, when are you going to give us a new word? And without missing a beat, and they, they told me, they said, Strap looked at us and he says, When you start living out the word that I'm preaching now. And they just walked out of the room, right? Like, what do you do? Like, it hit him like, Oh, that's what he was after. You see, we, if we're honest, like, I don't think, I think at times, like, we don't like that. We want something new, and, and man, Satan loves that. Because he just wants you to be pacified, right? Like, you don't, don't, don't talk about it anymore. Don't, don't live it out. Don't listen to that. Rather, listen to these things that promote health, wealth, and happiness, right? Like, don't do those things. You don't have to. Just, and he's just always seeking to pacify us because he loves whenever we think, well, I just need a new word. If I just had a new word. No, just be obedient to the word. See, the Bible is a book that is living and active and is meant to be living and active in what it produces in our lives. The term that Paul uses here in, in, I believe it's the end of verse 1, is walk. And it's a word that he uses 32 times in this letter. 
Because you see, Paul understands that when we walk, when we live out that which we know to be true, which is the gospel, because it has implications for all of life, right? What Paul says is, he says, when you do that, you please God. So Paul says, he, he says, do this, this is nothing new. And then he says, but, but don't just do this because you already, like, do it more and more and more. You see, progressive sanctification leads to progressive obedience because, again, we haven't arrived. And so in verse 2, when Paul says, hey, look, this, this instruction we gave you is nothing new. Like, you know it, now live it. And so let's now look at the first area of instruction that Paul is concerned with by reading verses 3 through 8. Again, this is an uncomfortable area, an uncomfortable topic, but it's the Bible and we just preach the word. Beginning verse 3, it says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore whoever disregards this. Disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Alright, so Paul moves into the first ethic in the chapter by calling everyone in the church to abstain from sexual immorality. Now before we get into the specifics of what Paul is doing here, I want to note the two reasons for this. And that he states at the beginning of verse 3, and I believe that these two reasons encapsulate all of Christian ethics. First, he says that this is the will of God. You see, his first reason in saying these things is that God's people would submit to the will of God. What we get here is a picture of what we would term as God's revealed will. These are things like He's revealed in His Word. He says they're here. Nothing's hiding from you. Guess what? In the kingdom of God, there is no guesswork when it comes to what it means to live moral lives. There's no guesswork. Like, we have it. Now, now the thing about that, and, and I believe sometimes the way it, it gets enmeshed or we mold it together is culture says the opposite. And actually culture actively seeks to make its own will. And if we're not careful, we'll actively seek to make our own will. But it always ends in disaster. Not only does it always end in disaster, guess what? It's always a guessing game, right? Let me show you the guesswork. I was, uh, we talked about this a couple of days ago, but, um, how do you remember? I don't know how many years it's been now, uh, but it was formerly the Washington Redskins, right? And then there was an uproar and everything went down and I'm not here. I'm not talking about who's right, who's wrong, any of that. Like I'm going to step outside that box. Uh, but what happened was because of petitions and arguing and, and all this stuff, right? Like, uh, picketing and all that. They decided, they said, okay, we're going to change the name and they moved it to what? The Washington Commanders, okay? And so they changed the name to the Washington Commanders and, and everything went on. And then guess what happens? This year, They have over a 100,000 signatures from Native Americans that are saying, no, we want it to be Redskins again, and this is why. Right? Like they they lay, and so, you know, it's like they want to change the name back. 
Because guess what? It's all over the place. It's, well, that wasn't okay that day, but now it's okay today because we're making our will the center. They were offended then, now they're offended, and it's just insanity, right? But we do the same thing. We're really good because, man, sinning's kind of like what we, we were born doing. Uh, we're really good at, at inching into that reality of like, well, that wasn't okay then, but I'm going to mold it and make it. It's okay now. And if we're not careful, we can do that with areas just like what Paul's talking about here. But you see, it's not so with God. What God said is, He says, here is the standard of truth. It doesn't change. It doesn't bend to your will. You bend to its. Secondly, Paul says that the reason for calling us to grow in our understanding of what it means to live out the gospel is that it is for our sanctification. That we would grow more and more into the image of Jesus by living out the implications of the gospel in every aspect of our lives. You see, this has been Paul's prayer throughout this letter. Specifically, at the end of chapter 3, he says, My prayer is that you would grow in holiness. Because guess what? Paul understands something. It's not so much about how you start, but how you finish. And, and Because we are a people that have been set apart to live differently. I think it was Spurgeon one time preached to thousands and he did an altar call. A man, like hundreds, if not like over a thousand came forward and, and said they were giving their life to Jesus. And afterwards, someone walked up and said, man, that was a great day. How many people do you think got saved today? And he said, well, we'll see in three months. Because he knew like in the moment, it's easy to start something. Well, Paul understands. He says, no, like it, it, it's not just in the moment and then you just escape and long for that one day, right? He says, no, there's a whole lot of life left to live. We are set apart to live differently. And so today, church, are we set apart? And so because of this, Paul lays those two things out. And he says, okay, it, it, you, want an ethic, you want something to live by? Abstain from sexual immorality. Now, now, it's not really that surprising that he begins here. Greco-Roman culture, it was not uncommon in this culture for a man to have a wife, a mistress, a concubine, and or a harlot whenever he so desired. It it was commonplace, actually promoted, and in pagan culture, it, it was seen as an act, like it was a part of worship. But guess what? There's nothing new under the sun. Sexual immorality is a battleground of culture, and guess they are, guess what? They are fighting to make it a relative reality based on one's desires. Whoever and whatever you want, whenever and however you want it, which is why pornography is rampant and largely unchecked both inside the church and outside the church. And who or whatever you desire to be. Rather than seeing it as a biblical mandate in the confines of a marriage covenant between one man and one woman. And I believe Paul in this text is actually arguing for that covenant in these verses. You see, Paul understands this, and to a greater degree, God understands this threat. And so he calls the church in Thessalonica and the church today to action in a few different ways. First, he says, abstain. Now this does not simply mean refrain from or stop doing. The wording here is a declaration that the will of God for our lives when it comes to sexual immorality is that of a clean cut with impurity. 
It's not something to be dabbled in. It's something to be cut away. And so quickly, what is sexual immorality? Well, according to Scripture, it is first anything outside of one man, one woman, union of marriage. But second, within a marriage, and I believe Paul states this in the text, it is anything that does not honor the spouse, but rather seeks to take advantage of them. Therefore, being married does not mean you have freedom to take advantage. And so while culture says we're free to seek gratification for our own means and desires, the gospel calls us to something totally different. And Paul describes it in two ways in verse 4. First, Paul describes that that sex has a God-given context. He says, for each one is to control his own body. Now, now within this first way, I believe that Paul is actually laying out first a descriptive call to self-control for all in God's kingdom, while also setting a prescriptive mandate for heterosexual marriage when it comes to sexual union. And so let me explain why I believe there's a case for both. First, the call for all to practice self-control. You see, whether you're single or married, we're all to control the urges of our bodies when it comes to this ethic. Meaning that we are all to abstain from sexual immorality. This then leads to the prescriptive mandate of the verse that is more clear actually when you read it in a different translation. I believe ESV does a good job, but... um, It only calls for general self-control, or that's kind of what you see there. But most actually believe that that the Revised Standard Version takes Paul's description deeper into a mandate for this type of union, this ethic to be in the confines of marriage between one man and one woman. In the RSV, it says that each one of you would know how to take a wife for himself. The, The word for vessel... That's used in the ESV. If you look all throughout scripture. It it is used oftentimes To describe a husband taking a wife. And what Paul is getting at here. Is that if we want to display a better ethic to the world around us. We are to be self-controlled. But also we are to seek. If God wills it to marry rather than committing sexual immorality. Because marriage, which is the second thing we see here. Marriage, godly biblical marriage, puts sex in its proper context. And so sex has a God-given style. It, As Paul says, it promotes two things. Holiness and honor. What this means is that when looking at the biblical view of sex and the marriage covenant, it is always seeking to promote holiness before God and the spouse while also honoring God who created and gave it as a gift and at the same time honoring your spouse. And so I want to make a note really quick, like in in parents, like I want you to hear me. What this means is that we have to begin to view and talk about these issues with our children in the proper and in proper and more gospel-centered ways. You see, much of the time in the church, the conversations around this issue only focus on the negative and never engage the positive call of Scripture regarding what it means to practice self-control and view it in the context of biblical marriage for the purpose of honor and holiness. Parents, we do a disservice to our kids when we don't disciple them in a proper understanding of these things. 
And the result, often because it is either not taught or it is poorly taught, is guess what? They're going to learn it. But it's going to be from the culture. Like it's going to happen. And the reason I know is because it happened to me. I remember my mother told me, she said, I'm just going to send you to the barber shop. That's not where I needed to go. I needed to go here. This is where I needed to learn. And we do a disservice to our children when we don't disciple them in a proper understanding of it. Age appropriate, right? Maturity level, and that can be all over the map. And so we have to put on our big boy and girl pants. We have to seek biblical resources. Take time to learn and engage in the conversations over time. And as you feel that your kid is ready, again, it is a process. Don't open the fire hydrant. I also, I just want to say, I... I'm not saying this as an expert. I haven't even had to start having conversations yet. Which I believe leads to another thing is, man, seek community and ask questions. Learn from one another. You see, we have to stop only stating the wrong, and there is much wrong. And we have to begin to explain what is right and glorious about sexuality and the way God created it. The reason Paul states in the rest of the text is because we, two weeks in a row, we are again to proclaim and live a different ethic than the world around us. For while the Gentile unbeliever, Paul says, lives for their own passions and lusts, we who have experienced the transformative power of the gospel in our salvation are to live from that grace daily and not fall into sin that transgresses not only God, but our brother or sister in Christ. You see, sexual immorality is a destroyer of relationships because guess what? You never sin in a vacuum. It always affects other people. And in the end, what Paul says, in the end, you'll be judged by God. For God, Paul states, has not called us to impurity, but to holiness. You see, there's a difference between impurity, which is passion of lust, and holiness, which is godly passion. One seeks to serve self and bears no fruit. The other seeks to serve God and one spouse and bears much fruit. You see, this is what we are to display as the church. We have been called to holiness that is to be both displayed in self-control, holiness and honor, and proclaimed as we speak better news to the world around us that is being wrecked by the poor sexual ethics of our day. You see, the world around us, and I don't mean this as a jab, I mean as this is the reality, is looking for answers they will never get by adding more letters and pronouns to an already exhausted list of letters and pronouns. And so may we as the church speak the words, not of condemnation and hate, but of grace that proclaims better news, and may we live it out by living out a better ethic to the world in ways that promotes biblical truth and bears the fruit of honor and holiness. 
This is what we're called to, church. This is what Paul is after here. So how do we do this? Well, let me give just a few ways. First, we need to reflect. I encourage you to reflect on your own life. To, to allow the Spirit to do work, to see, uh, to, I mean, what does it look like to abstain? And to seek holiness and honor. As a single person or a married person, as a parent. Next, I call you, if needed, to repent. Today, if you find yourself practicing these things, there is more grace, James 4, 6, but God calls you to repentance. Next, I encourage you to be honest, to be transparent, to seek help in community, to receive grace, but also to give grace. Then I encourage you to seek accountability where needed. If you... I realize today that there's an area you need to abstain in. Guess what? You need support and you're foolish if you think you can do it alone. And then lastly, I encourage you to live it. Abstain and cut off, but preach and leave a better ethic to the world. Live a better ethic to the world around you, whether you are single or married. Again, church, like, it's all around us. Let's not stick our heads in the mud. Also, we probably shouldn't hold up signs and spew hate either. Rather, we should learn what it means to cultivate healthy, gospel-centered conversations, to live and serve in such a way that it mirrors and proclaims, man, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That we would get to a point to where, um, we'll probably all have to make the disclaimer, but it's not like, I'm sweating, y'all are sweating, we don't know, you know, where are we going to go with this? But that we would know, like, that, man, this, like, the scripture talks about it, and so we want to engage in it in healthy ways and healthy conversations. That's what we're after. For the sake of our singleness, for the sake of our marriage, for the sake of our holiness, for the sake of honoring God and others, and for the sake of proclaiming it to the world around us. And so I'm going to have the team come back up. And this is what I want to invite you to do. I want to invite you to those things of, to reflect, to repent, to be honest, seek accountability. Man, if you need prayer in this moment, like, man, again, like you can come talk to me. Uh, you can go to someone you trust in this room, but don't do it alone, right? And then begin to ask God, like, what does it look like for you to preach and live a better ethic with your life? As a husband or a wife or a single person or uh, as a parent or as just someone in the church. And the next thing we're going to do is 
And I want to invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, to come share in communion. And what we do in this moment, we are reflecting on, man, the great sacrifice that Jesus gave. And that he gave all of himself so that we might be made holy. And in turn, man, he is due all the honor, glory, forevermore. And so I'm going to pray and then the people that are going to be handing out the elements are going to come forward after I pray. And then I'm just going to invite you all to come, take the elements, go sit back down. And I'm going to lead us in the sharing of communion as we reflect on the sacrifice that Jesus gave for his bride, the church. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we don't need a new word. We need to live the word we've been called to live. That's right before us. That leaves no guesswork. Now, there are things that aren't revealed to us. We have faith and trust you for those things. But for the things that are, may we be faithful to them by your grace, empowered by your spirit alone. And so, God, I pray for each person here in this room. Lord, I don't know the story they come from. I don't know the life that they've lived. But I pray, God, that whether they are single or married or wherever they find themselves, God, that that they would uh, see the good news reality that the gospel proclaims to us a better ethic in regards to what we just walked through. And so may we proclaim it and may we live it in ways that display your glory and goodness to the world around us. God, may we repent where we need to repent. May we uh, find hope in you and you alone. For you satisfy our deepest desires. God, may we not seek to combat things in isolation. May we not seek to combat things tomorrow or the next. May we begin today. And may we be grateful that you've called us in to the church, the body of Christ. That we might grow in holiness. In Jesus' name.